Hello and welcome to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Hey there. Hi. So I am going to kind of pick up where Luke <laughs> left off on the on the seas. I thought I'd ride the wave of our boat well theme done you. and yes. dive into the horribly upsetting world of prison ships. <laughs> this is a fascinating subject. Very interesting. It's a big subject. You know, I have this, Luke knows this, uh, that I have this bad habit of picking really broad topics and then realizing once I start, oh, I have to narrow this down by like a lot. <laughs> well, you're so committed to telling the story in its totality and you want to do right by the people. I do. I do. And I, I care we got a lot of other competing sources of information. So you want to offer something different, synthesize. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll explain up front. I mean, when we're talking about uh, prison ships, uh, also known as prison hulks, as uh, they are often sometimes known as hell ships or Ooh. floating hell. <laughs> <laughs> I sentence you to floating hell for the next 45 years. Which really, you'll. It was. <laughs> they really were. And so, like I was saying, the, the topic is very vast mm -hmm. because different countries have their own sordid histories of prison ships. Mm -hmm. I think for the most part, we do associate prison ships with England. It seems to be from everything I can tell that the, the first ones really do start with Great Britain, which makes sense because there's such a strong naval power and prison ships are generally retired warships. So right. who's going to have that the most of, of those? Sense. Yeah. Who's going to have the most of those laying around? <laughs> it's yes, going to be the, England. Right? The king, the royal fleet. Yes. Exactly. But, you know, I think some of you may be familiar with other sort of POW ships, like in Japan, in World War II, their ships were known as hell ships and they awful, awful stories around those. And I think probably one of the big things that people think of with prison ships is the convict ships that were transporting criminals from England to the other colonies, uh, specifically Australia, because that's how Australia came to be. <laughs> it was mm -hmm. colonized by a, prisoners. A penal colony. Yes, exactly. And uh, and it's the basis for many of our favorite fictional works, Luke, like Great Expectations, my personal favorite, Sweeney Todd. Um, mm -hmm. And honestly, each of these stories of prison ships are absolutely worthy of their own future episodes. And I think that we should definitely address them. I mean, especially the story of Australia's penal colonies is nuts. <laughs> right. So where, which flavor of prison ship are we dealing with? Oh, we're going to the OG. We're going to the original, which was the birth of the prison ship. It's attributed to the American Revolution. Mm. So... We are going to ramble our way <laughs> to the beginning of the American Revolutionary War. And I feel like I shouldn't have to give you guys context because, no. Jesus Christ, if you don't know the basic premise of the American Revolutionary War by now, I certainly can't help you. There's nothing more Americocentric than that. Like Jesus Christ. <laughs> you, can't, you can't pass the most basic elementary school exams without at least giving me one sentence about what it's about. I am going to focus on New York at the time, because that is really where our story takes place. Even then, in the late 1700s, New York City was commerce. 
it is so incredibly valuable to the British Empire and had been already for over a century at that point. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting about New York, and unless you've studied New York during this time period, I think a lot of people don't know or realize New York leans heavily Tory or loyalist Quite. at this time. Quite. Yes, yes. And the we see the same kind of stuff happen in the Civil War, where we actually are not super Republican anti-slavery. There's right. a lot of Northern Democrats who are like, but we make so much money off slavery. We don't want to get rid of it. So similarly, but we do so well under right. the British Empire. Why would we give that up? You raise a great point. You know, yeah. the temptation is to is to simplify these conflicts into social causes or social reasons, which are embedded yeah. in the material or the economic. Mm -hmm. And you're right. The status quo was something worth preserving. And you know, yeah. the entire reason New York exists is for trade. Exactly. Exactly. So there's so much more to lose as a successful New Yorker, right? Mm -hmm. I've got it fucking made in the shade here. <laughs> I'm not in Boston dealing with their nonsense. I'm good, man. I'm staying out of it. Uh, New York abstains. Courteously, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> New York, New Yorkers speak very loudly in Albany. You know, it's very difficult to get anything done. It's so true. That's right. Oh, my um, God. So, sorry, guys. It's a lot of 1776, 1776. references. Our welcome. apologies. So, anyway. Yeah. yeah, these are seemingly okay with that, despite the fact that, you know, they are suffering under the somewhat overbearing taxes that have been put into place as a result of the French and Indian War that England had engaged in and spent a lot of money on, but felt very strongly that it should mostly be on the colonies to pay off that war debt, even though the colonies didn't get a say in that matter because they are not allowed to serve in Parliament nor have any say in how taxes are levied, Whatsoever, there you go. I did tell you about the American Revolution. economics, <laughs> economics, Robert Reich, economics. Thank you very much. I lived with his Great. son. I don't think I ever told you that. Oh, you did, and I have carried that with me. Oh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> I'm so jealous that you met him. I'm so oh, jealous that you guy. know him. Oh, yeah, uh, in this tangential level, even. Oh, he's a big crush of mine. Economics he's a, crush. He's a lovely man, very small, lovely man. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Size. Anyway, so they have so much to lose, but also this is terrifying. England is the most powerful nation. It's it's yes, this, it's this superpower that we can't even understand in our lifetime. It's it's so much bigger than we can fathom because it has colonies. It's yes. its influence and power is vast. Titanic, even. <laughs> if you if you would be so bold as to say. Or Britannic, um, for that matter. Yeah, and so the idea of this tiny little baby country with no trained army, no navy, right, going up against a superpower, it also seems like, honestly, the very New Yorker thing of to be like, eh, I'm, staying, I, I'm staying out of it. I'm going to mind. <laughs> I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to mind mine. And I'm staying out of it. <laughs> eh. I'm good. <laughs> but you're right. In the in the movie The Patriot, which is completely accurate. They, oh, that's um, on the list, by the way. 
Yes, it is. Lord Cornwallis talks about um, these rustics, you know, and they Ooh. and they, and the Americans are referred to these like primitives. Yes. Um, not not referring to the native folk, which are sometimes known as primitive or derisively called such. Yes. But right. that these guys, these people, are bumpkins. They have no resources. They have no training. They have no breeding. No aristocratic, yeah. you know, sort of. What are they? They're the exiles. They come at us with pitchforks. <laughs> these farmers that's right that guerrilla warfare that would america would be you know besought by in the 20th century that was how we started as a country yeah we nailed that shit early on we did <laughs> so on a larger scale what's and again i i sort of mentioned this already there's a good chance you didn't know anything about new york during the war because if you're going to look into the history of the american revolution in terms of you know to experience in a tactile way, you're probably going to Philadelphia or Boston, right? And the, right. Main, the main reason is that New York is a big loser in the war. <laughs> Nothing nice happens here during the war. The city is set on fucking fire. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the bloodiest, most horrific battle of the entire war is fought and lost here. So- yes. The Battle As, of Long Island. Yes, which I'm going to talk about a, a teeny tiny bit. Mm -hmm. So I think because of those reasons, New York City has never really spent much time investing in any large scale recognition or, you know, American Revolutionary War tourism. You know, the way that these other places, that is their, their calling does, card. That is the, that is what makes them what they are, right. right? New York has a complicated relationship with the founding and the revolution, despite the fact that it plays a large role. It certainly does, yeah. And we do have little things here and there. You know, there's like Francis Tavern, the spy trails of Long Island, which have only become better known because of... What's what's his futz? The show. What the fuck's that show called? Turn. Yeah, that. <laughs> Jamie, Jamie Bell. Yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're right. As inaccurate as it also can be at times. But right, because Nathan Hale, Nathan Hale was captured in Long Island and hanged in New York and City. Killed, yeah. But yeah, at least that puts New York a little bit in people's minds in terms of this time period. Because otherwise we're we're kind of an afterthought, which is crazy because a lot of people die in New York during this war. Mm -hmm. And what's crazy is with the Battle of Long Island, which I always call the Battle of Brooklyn because that's how I grew up <laughs> knowing it. That's how it's commemorated in Brooklyn, yes. which is interesting. And yeah. in Long Island, it's always called the Battle of Long Island, which is mm -hmm. very funny. So yeah, I actually didn't learn about it in school, even though I was schooled in Brooklyn. So that tells you everything. They you failed need. you. They failed yeah. you in public schools. Exactly. So that really tells you everything you need to know about the importance of this history to New York. It isn't even valued in the education system because mm -hmm. uh, history belongs to the winners. And this is a situation where New York is a fucking loser. So <laughs> let's jump to April 1776. At this point, as I'm sure y'all know, uh, the fighting has really only been in Massachusetts. And George Washington and his ragtag team <laughs> of patriots have done an incredible job of beating back the enemy and forcing their evacuation. Incredible. No one could have predicted it would go uh, as well Battle as it of Boston. Did. Big deal. Huge deal. But he knows that they will be back and it's going to be bad. Mm -hmm. And that likely this next wave of soldiers will be heading to New York. The At this point, the British are kind of recouping, I think, in Nova Scotia in Canada. Uh, so he's trying to prepare himself and his people for what's coming. 
So he is, of course, correct. And the British Navy is seen in New York waters beginning in late June of 1776. And uh, this is part of the really what helps move along the Declaration of Independence, because there's no question now, like, this is happening. We're mm -hmm. at war, like whether you like it or not, they're here. They're occupying our waters. And, and that's a clear threat. They're talking about <laughs> the British Navy surrounding New York. I mean, that's terrifying. I can't even imagine how scary that must have been. The accounts describe, you know, it being almost like you could walk across the Narrows because there were so many ships and masts and just yes. watercraft. And this is like cutting the colonies in two, at mm -hmm. least the 13 colonies, you know, because you've got Boston to the north and yep. you've got Philadelphia to the south. And mm -hmm. New York is this chokehold, the Hudson River going up to Canada. So it's a very scary thing. Oh, yeah. Think about that kind of invasion force, thousands of troops. And what's really scary is that Washington and General Howe both know that whoever controls New York waterways could potentially control the entire outcome of the war because nothing will be able to come in or out of New York and That's therefore right. in and out of the colonies easily unless you can control those waterways. That's right. So it's a, it's a humongous deal to try to get control of New York. Oh, yeah, for either side. So it's August 22nd, 1776, when William Howe's large fleet and 34,000 army troops <laughs> land here. And they ultimately are trying to gain New York City, gain the Hudson River. And like Luke said, it would ultimately divide the colonies in half. It's something like, I think it's about 45 British ships are in lower New York Bay at this point. And so again, this, this emphasizes why you would immediately be like, why are we doing this? Why are we fighting in this war? Like, I'm good. Right. <laughs> are we poking the bear? Yeah, yeah, they've made it pretty clear that we can't win this. And, and initially, it was posturing. There was a hope still, despite everything that had been happening in Massachusetts, that maybe there was room for negotiations. Um, Indeed. But. <laughs> that but. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's and again, you got to applaud Washington for for his moxie, because Washington has only gathered about 20,000 soldiers. With pitchforks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yes, these are as we know, is the case for a lot of the, the war, not well-trained individuals, people who've never, ever been in the army, have no idea what they're doing. Like no. waste, Farmers, yeah, weavers. Guns going <laughs> off left and right. Like it's a These militiamen, you know, they real, know what's going on. real unpolished. Yeah, so <laughs> by now, you know, he... I don't even know, like, why the kind of headspace he's in at this, that point. To, like, as someone who has no, you know, interest in being in the military or anything, like, how do you, when those, you have those odds set in front of you, how do you push through? How do you go forward? I don't know. I mean, you're, what you're talking about, you know, the asymmetrical warfare and the, and the spy rings, these were the best hopes he had because there was Truly. no way he could meet these guys in a field of battle. The contest was often settled very quickly. Yeah. You know, and, and the story of New York is very much controlled by the spies on either side. In oh, fact, yeah. when once the ships started to come into New York, they started clearing out the loyalists because they were like, we don't need these motherfuckers telling them every move we're going to make. And that is ultimately what 
happens with Washington is they're betrayed by their movements um, and why ultimately the British are able to invade and the Battle of Brooklyn occurs, which again, it's also known as the Battle of Long Island. It goes down on August 27th, 1776, and it is the bloodiest mess in the whole war. It's pretty much a disaster for Washington, who's forced to retreat out of New York. He gets very lucky because there's a massive fog that makes the retreat possible. Ultimately, though, it's said close to 2,179, according to Mr. David McCullough. Uh, <laughs> that's how many Americans were either killed, wounded, or captured, compared to mm -hmm. less than 500 on the side of the Brits and the Hessians who had already been helping them. Right. So, so that's it. The Brits got it. They're they're in control. They're running New York from this point on. So immediately, of course, they after taking New York, they're also taking captives, uh, soldiers they've been able to capture, citizens they've been able to capture, anyone and anyone that is clearly committing, quote unquote, treason in this mm -hmm. situation. But they don't really have anywhere to put them. So that's where these prison ships are going to come in. So I'm going to rewind a second. Back in 1775, King George III everybody's favorite crazy king. Uh, he is the one who officially declares uh, that American forces are traitors. They are committing the act of treason by doing what they're doing, by being in rebellion. Therefore, they could not be considered prisoners of war, mm. which is how they sort of make the excuse for being as horrible as they are to mm. the Americans during this. Okay, Which usually for treason, you could just be killed. And so here's what's funny about that. Because the British feared further public rebuke and more rebellion and issues, they didn't hang the people immediately for this act mm -hmm. of quote-unquote treason. Instead, they felt, all right, we just have to keep them as prisoners. But they're not prisoners of war. They're prisoners of treason? <laughs> like, they just paid this out, right. basically. <laughs> So nothing like, you know, a watery uh, middle ground. To yeah. Just, you know. And with no interest of being like, okay, we're going to do big prisoner trades and, and things mm -hmm. like that. It's like, no, no, no. They're ours till we're mm. done. Ay. And part of it also was they're ours with the hope that we could actually recruit them, that we could get them to switch sides. So that was part right. of it too. So because they're not prisoners of war, they are not treated with any level of care, respect, or dignity. Um, so it's the Rehabilitation Project Force in Scientology, just <laughs> with <laughs> with King George. <laughs> similar, similar craziness. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, Scrape the deck, <laughs> wash the poop deck. Um, toothbrush. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, if only that was like the worst of their treatment on these uh, these horrible yeah. ships, but. Basically, regardless of the fact that they're like, no, no, we can't hang them. That looks bad. It's the same result because mm -hmm. the amount of American patriots who die on these ships, I mean, we're talking thousands of people. And the ship becomes the obvious thing, literally, because, you know, th this is this is America. This is the colonies. There's nowhere to put anyone. You know, we didn't have federal prisons. We didn't have things like that. So, no, you might have had a fort. But right. that could be risky um, in itself if, if the fort is compromised or captured. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, anchoring them in the bay. It's seems, smart. It's very smart. Yeah. It's super in, unhygienic and scary. But They're not accessible. It's not yeah. easy to break them out. And I've even read things where, I don't know if this is true of all, all of the prison ships, but it would generally only women were allowed 
to visit the ship to offer help or aid of any kind, again, to help prevent any kind of possibility of escape or rebellion or anything like that. Of course. Yeah. So, yeah, they use these ships that are no longer seaworthy. Like I mentioned, the term Hulk, Luke, you you were calling... Often Titanic used to describe a wreck. A yes. wreck, yes. Mm -hmm. The more the original use of the term is for a ship that's essentially been decommissioned. That it's like it's in a <laughs> it's like when your dad retires, but then he keeps doing work anyway, like on the side, like my dad. <laughs> <laughs> my dad started his own retired and then started an LLC. <laughs> right. Like, so that's it's like not retiring. <laughs> so when I walked into the Walmart, I saw a Hulk <laughs> greeting people at the front door. <laughs> <laughs> That's just because he doesn't have social security. Anyway. Oh, God, help him. So <laughs> these poor people died for nothing. <laughs> Anywho, so uh, yes, this is the, the birth of the prison ship or prison hulk. By October of 1776, the British have created their first prison ship known as the Whitby in the Bay of Brooklyn. Sounds cute. It does, doesn't it? The Whitby actually has a terrible, terrible history and ending. It's not going to be the main ship I focus on today, but it does end ultimately by the prisoners, rather than spending a single day further on this nightmare, they set it on fire. They would rather die on the burning ship than continue to live like that. So wow. that gives you a little clue of how good this is going to be. <laughs> so yeah. Eventually, prison ships would be seen in Charleston, Savannah, Norfolk, off the coast of Virginia, and in Canada. But it really seems that Brooklyn, in New York City, it would carry the most prison ships and prisoners because of its location mm -hmm. and the fact that, you know, that was occupied by Britain. They had they had that place in hand. And so people from other colonies who had been captured were brought to these ships in Brooklyn. So it was people from all over were there. And sometimes people were shipped out of New York and sent to other colonies, places in Canada, um, sent all the way back to England. And eventually those people at the end of the war would be somehow find their way back to America. But I know it's, it's so wild. scary. It's so, it's so wild. And this area that we're mostly talking about, by the way, if, for those who maybe do know your Brooklyn geography a little bit, this is where the Brooklyn Navy Yard is today. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the East River, Wallabout Bay, that whole little area. And this is close to like Fort Greene. This mm -hmm. is the area close to Dumbo and all that. And some of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's fine. <laughs> Look at a map, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> South of Williamsburg. Got it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> North of Park Slope, which, by the way, a lot of <laughs> a lot of fighting happened there. I used to live around the corner from, um, come on, the, you know the one. Um, Old Stone House. Old Stone, yeah. I lived, that did was you go to corner. the reenactment of the of Battle of Brooklyn I at did. Greenwood? That's I sure so did, cool. yeah. That's so yeah, cool. Yeah. They've kind of toned it down in recent years, no shade, but they've, <laughs> they've changed it a little bit. Whatever. Who cares? We'll see anyway. what happens for, you know, 2026. <laughs> I have high hopes. Anyway. Yeah. In total, from what I could find, there were about 16, 16 of these monstrous ships around New York, but none were more notorious than the HMS Jersey. Mm. <sighs> the Jersey had originally set sail all the way back in 1736. So it, she, she an old boat. By now. Named after the turnpike. Correct. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Tony Soprano 
was the one who christened it. <laughs> uh, it had been involved in many a conflict in her day. Mm -hmm. um, most recently, she had been involved in the Seven Years' War. Uh, but she was showing her age. <laughs> and she was initially converted to a hospital ship, which was another use for ships that kind of were, you know, not in the That's best right. shape anymore. But that was around 1771. But by 1779, the British realized it was probably a good idea to officially hulk her and repurpose her as a prison ship. Right. Before yeah. scrap, you get hulked. Got that it. poor, that poor old girl. Like she hadn't seen <laughs> enough at that point. <laughs> like those are her golden years. My dad's golfing, starting an LLC in this poor bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about what it was like to be on the HMS Jersey. Mm. At any given time, there could be upwards of 1,000 men on the vessel. And the ship was designed to hold around 350 to 400 soldiers. Oh, God. Yeah. And we all know, if you've ever looked into anything involving the Navy or, or ships or whaling or anything in the 18th century, the 1700s, the quarters are quite crammed for the allotment for 350 to 400 people, right? It's yeah. not a ton of fucking walking space in these boats. No, you have a small little hammock or bunk yeah. to yourself. Yeah, so you more than double that, that's a God. lot of bodies on oh, top of each other. That's really smelly. So, <laughs> these prisoners are a combination of soldiers and civilians who had been captured and considered traitors. And again, like I said, part of this capture was a way of trying to coerce the men to join the British forces. And trying to convert people. Yeah. So this could be a promise of freedom from the ship or threaten worse treatment like physical abuse or withholding food and drink. And what's really incredible about this story is from the numerous accounts that have been written and that I've read, it sounds like almost none were willing to defect, which is like awe-inspiring. Truly. You know? The dedication to the cause. Like, I would rather fucking rot in this boat than and be isn't that amazing to that the country a, that doesn't even exist yet, to the country that In a place where, right, the loyalism was so strong. Yeah. Those who were on the side of independence were just as strong. They were so vehement. It was very polarized. Because if you think about it, this is the difference between this is this is my life, my liberty, my pursuit of happiness versus this guy who's like, yeah, this is my job. <laughs> like mm -hmm. it's very different. Mm -hmm. Like the British, mm -hmm. the British soldier isn't all that invested no. in the colonies. No, right? he's got a commission. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's you're just fighting with something very different behind you, right? That's a huge point. And that's that the heart of asymmetrical warfare exactly it has to be that way mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're that outnumbered outgunned mm -hmm. it, you your have to have it. It. you have to have heart and passion on yeah. your side wow so it's it's unbelievable um there are some prisoners who either escaped or eventually were released who said in their entire time on the ship which for some was years they never saw anyone defect which is phenomenal that is astonishing and even more phenomenal after I described this to you. <laughs> so, if you know your history, at this point, there's nothing on the books that protects prisoners of war. 
even though these guys aren't even considered prisoners of war, they're considered traitors, which, you know, fuck traitors. But even prisoners of war, like officially, nothing protects them from cruel and unusual punishment or compels a captor to care for the individual mm -hmm. really when they're locked up. Mm -hmm. We don't see anything like this until the Geneva Convention, really, yeah, because of how way off. bad things went in World War II. So without this code of conduct in place, the 18th century, most of the care is either non-existent, and that would be anything from medical care, vetting, food, I mean, everything, that either that would be neg completely neglected or they mm -hmm. would expect the same side to provide for their, the pe their people who have been captured, which is crazy. <laughs> that, right. And why, like, women, again, could have been allowed to come onto the ship to bring food, to bring a fucking blanket or something. You know what I mean? But again, this is wartime provisions are scarce so mm -hmm. it's not like there's tons of things to bring to these prisoners anyway so what is provided if it's provided at all is substandard making it impossible near impossible for humans to survive during their stints on these ships and with this intense crowding obviously we're talking about the worst possible living conditions right yeah for the most part they are below deck which would make it stiflingly hot down there. The air is so close. Stagnant. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, it's difficult to breathe. There's so much mm -hmm. carbon dioxide. I read a few different reports where they said you could barely keep a candle lit down there. Was There was such a lack of oxygen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I want to, like, pass out. Yeah, just it's like pressurized. That. It's yeah. so overwhelming. Yeah, um, and it's dark. You know, it's it's... And you mostly just hear things. You hear people being sick and moaning and scared and crying and mm. cursing. And people are also obviously just urinating and defecating on mm -hmm. the ship. There's no, there's nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. So we have all of the usual suspects in terms of disease, typhus. We have smallpox. There's scurvy from the lack of nutrition. There's right. dysentery, there's yellow fever. All of the big baddies of the day are there and on these mm -hmm. ships, which is crazy that the soldiers were like, I'm fucking out of here. <laughs> like, bye. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. I didn't look into, and there's books that are just written about this and I, and I definitely want to research more, but I don't know where the soldiers went for a lot of this. Like, I imagine they tried to stay above deck as much as they could, but like, there's storms, there's winter time. Like, this goes on for years. This is from 1776 to 1783. Yeah. Like, what kind of provisions were there for the, you know, masters of these ships, the prison, the keepers of the prisoners? And that's something I had, I didn't look into because, yeah. Again, this is so much content, but it's, I, I definitely want to after starting this journey. <laughs> totally. So, and if disease didn't take you, starvation or dehydration, certainly could instead. Absolutely. I've read a few different accounts and some of them say that anywhere between six to 12 men would die on the ships on specifically the Jersey every single day. Damn. So like I just said, 1776 to 1783, six to 12 men every day. That's atrocious. That's a big loss. That's a huge And how loss. many do you think total were on the ship? I couldn't say total numbers on the ship. Mm -hmm. The only number they have is the rough estimate of dead, which I'll right. I'll come to that at the end. But I, I've, I have yet to find that number. I, I'm sure it was tens of thousands in total. Yeah, you know. Wow. Um, and then again, it, this is just one of the ships. This is just mm -hmm. the history of uh, mm -hmm. the New Jersey. 
I do want to share some accounts of the individuals who survived these ships because, you know, I could, I could talk about this, but I think it's so much more meaningful when we hear it from the people who actually lived there. Yes, give us the primary source. Yeah, so this is a man by the name of Christopher Vale. He wrote, when a man died, he was carried up on the forecastle and lay there until the next morning at eight o'clock when they were all lowered down the ship's sides by a rope round them in the same manner as though they were beasts. There was eight died of a day while I was there. They were carried on shore in heaps and hove out of the boat on the wharf, then taken across a hand barrow created to the edge of the bank where a hole was dug one or two feet deep and all hove in together. So that's what they were doing with the bodies or they were simply pitching them over the side mm. into the water. So there is not, they didn't care for them in life. They certainly no. didn't care for them in death. Very bleak. Very bleak. Uh, here is a man by the name of Ebenezer Fox who had been t captured as a teenager. And again, I have to emphasize when we're talking about American soldiers, these are children <laughs> a lot mm -hmm. of the time. A soldier yeah. in the American Revolutionary War could be anywhere from like, you know, 12 years old. <laughs> it was 16 to 60 for the militia. 16 to the 60. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, you could fudge that shit. It's not like they were asking for your ID. <laughs> the 14-year-olds definitely got in there seeking yeah. glory, right? 100%. Absolutely. That's the tales all this time. And, you know, these were also cabin boys and, you know, they were mm -hmm. on privateer ships and things like that. Mm -hmm. And their ships had been taken. So the, right. there's Apprentices a wide variety. And, yeah, yeah. So there's some young kids on these boats. Sure. Ebenezer Fox was one of them. And he said, many were actually starved to death in hope of making them enroll themselves in the British army. I now found myself in a loathsome prison among a collection of the most wretched and disgusting looking objects that I ever beheld in human form. Here was a motley crew covered with rags and filth, visages pallid with disease, emaciated with hunger and anxiety and retaining hardly a trace of their original appearance. And it just, it's so hard to fathom like a kid, you're a kid and you're just watching these, these men treat these other men like nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's a good time to also mention, and again, this certainly deserves its own treatment, but this is, this is par for the course when we're talking about slave ships. I mean, that's cargo. Who yeah, cares? No, you know, my mind goes exactly to that. Right. Those diagrams you see. Oh, they're and terrible. Thinking about, yeah. thinking about our 1776, cram them in the ships. Cram them in the ships. them in the ships. And it's the same yeah. for this. Yeah. And I mean. This is maxim that's maximizing profit. This is maximizing pain. Pain. Yeah. And, yeah. and a hope that this could somehow work out in their favor either oh great we're killing these guys or we're getting them on our side either way <laughs> it was a win, yeah. win, win. <laughs> there's no motivation to turn back the dial of the torture no you know no so did this guy ebenezer survive every one of these accounts is someone who either escaped or ultimately was is a living it was a living person these who are actually you know, yeah. yeah and what's crazy is some of these people who did manage to escape and i'll talk a little bit about that um the accounts are coming out at the time. So people did know how bad they were. And George Washington himself had written to the British leaders being like, this is unconscionable. Mm. You cannot do this to human beings. 
And he had heard accounts of, again, of similar stuff of like six, six people dying a day. You have to treat, like, I understand if you need to keep the prisoners, keep your prisoners. You cannot treat them this way. You have right. to treat them. And you can, you know, there was no problem with taking over, you know, the man, the manor houses of Staten Island and in Brooklyn and, yeah. and having kept, you know, um, regiment leaders and commanders taking over these properties. There were barns, there were farmsteads, there was property to be systematically used if it was desired. Oh, sure. But this was probably seen as, yeah, a, a, a path of least resistance in terms of we have our own property. We have these ships that we can just, you know, use yeah. and... It's uh, de de degraded quickly, it sounds like. Yeah. And this is a good time to kind of get into the soldiers who were in charge of these prisoners. A great way into that is through this man, um, Alexander Coffin Jr., who was an 18-year-old sailor who was imprisoned on the Jersey. He said, I soon found that every spark of humanity had fled the breasts of the British officers who had charge of that floating receptacle of human misery, which a beautiful way mm -hmm. of putting that and like very <laughs> very like easy to visualize you know what i mean yeah. and he goes on to say and that nothing but abuse and insult was to be expected but to cap the climax of infamy we were fed if fed it might be called with provisions not fit for any human being to make use of putrid beef and pork and worm-eaten bread and a lot of these accounts do talk about the food that was provided and the fact that often the yeah the food was very much spoiled and the meat was often even raw so of course every kind of stomach illness imaginable uh, mm. everything God. i mean you got tapeworm and mm -hmm. i mean it's just it's horrible and in terms of british abuse it would seem that the worse the war went for the english the more violent and cruel the soldiers would become on the ship, mm -hmm. which is awful. So this one event that really just chilled me when I read about it, it's the 4th of July in 1782, and America is killing it. <laughs> They're doing great in the war. And so- Almost over. I know, we're, we're, we're closing in on the end. And so the, the prisoners on the ship are, actually have joy in their hearts they are like holy shit we might be getting out of there they're singing songs they are celebrating in their own way they've been basically <laughs> pushed back under deck by these soldiers who are pissed because imagine like you've left your home for who knows how long to be in this war and you're ultimate you're losing yeah. it right and so despite the fact that they'd been pushed back under deck, they continue to sing. They continue to celebrate in their of own course. way. And then the guards, after they force them below deck and they had locked the hatches, they then come in because they had not stopped singing. And George Taylor, a man who wrote a book about this prison ship, <laughs> I almost said this prison ship life, like it's a cool lifestyle, <laughs> the life on the prison ships, um, mm -hmm. he says, with lanterns in one hand and cutlasses in the other. Ooh. They cut and wounded all within their reach. Oh then, my God. Then to gratify their hellish feelings, they closed the hatches and left the wounded and dying in darkness without the least means of dressing their wounds or stopping the flow of blood. And again, nothing, of July. nothing to be gained from that other than they're fucking over <sighs> it. 
and of course terrorizing traumatizing those who are not who those who survive or remain um mm -hmm. i wonder how the news of the war's progress reached these guys you know, you know i could imagine so interesting i think it was again because some people were allowed on the ships to yeah, like first women. of all the british are getting the news on the ships so i'm yes. sure there's some you know trickle down trickle down and then also you know if i'm a, a lovely gentlewoman from new york city coming aboard the boat to bring bread or whatever like i'm like okay just so you know things are looking really good right now <laughs> we just, we're, we're circling yorktown right now it's listen keep it chill don't start <laughs> singing or anything <laughs> <laughs> I could also see this is complete conjecture. I could also see someone on the shore, you know, like an old man, like shouting news to the ships or a private vessel churning through the bay could and be? just proclaiming, you know, trying to trying to inspire the men to it's hard keep to hope say alive, because you know? because, you know, Britain keeps New York till the bitter end. So yes. it's not easy to get in or out or around over there. So I don't think. Yeah. I don't know if that would have been it. I really don't know. But um, sorry, guys, we can only do so much research. <laughs> no, this is the imagination. This yeah, yeah, is yeah. what we're 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 just we're just spitballing here, and it's yeah. something that we've, you know, prison ships are a big part of Brooklyn history, and we're both students of the Revolution, and it's just something big that I've never yeah. considered. This yeah, no. this this part of the story of the dissemination of information and communication. Which I also I don't wish think people could receive letters, you know. I know. And and it also the I never considered this side of the story is the soldiers' experience on yeah. these ships. Because all of the yes. accounts are coming from the prisoners. The victims. Because yeah. you care more about the victims, of course. Especially when you hear stories like that, where it's like, fuck these guys. But yeah. it's helpful to have their accounts because you learn those kinds of things about information and all of that stuff. So and maybe those do exist, but I, I just didn't come across them in my research. So more, more to come on that. I definitely want to dive deeper into the soldier story. So escape, we, I, had, I had sort of spoken briefly about that. There's uh, one gentleman who I came across, uh, Robert Sheffield. Escape was not terribly common because generally you're just jumping into the water and then the soldiers are just going to get you. <laughs> like they're just going to be like, yeah, you can barely swim. Yeah. Get you're your pretty, ass back on the fucking weak. boat. Yeah. yeah. And depending on the time of the year, it could be crazy. The ones who escaped usually timed it out in a way where I think it might've been Sheffield where there was a horrible thunderstorm and they basically timed it where when a thunder clapped, they broke mm -hmm. out a window and they got right. through like a porthole and mm. the the weather was so horrendous i mean they risked their lives getting off the boat but jesus christ sure. worth it right um and so like therefore Alcatraz. no one yeah. no one saw them or was going to come after them. exactly it's that right. kind of a thing like now yeah, or never yeah. um so the few that did escape were able to do it under very specific circumstances mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and this is his report on being on the boat the heat was so intense that the hot sun shining all day on deck, that they were all naked, which also served well to get rid of the vermin. But the sick were eaten up alive. Their sickly countenances and ghastly looks were truly horrible. Some swearing and blaspheming, others crying, praying, and wringing their hands and stalking about like ghosts. Others delirious, raving and storming, all panting for breath, some dead and corrupting. The air was so foul that at times a lamp could not be kept burning because of which the bodies were not missed until they had been dead 
10 days. Jesus. So I think you can see now why it was called Hell. And this particular ship it was nicknamed Hell mm-hmm. in MS Jersey. And it was. And there's something about the staid quality of the experience. Yeah. Like I'm a person who, even if I have nothing going on, I have to like walk around the block. I need to like change the scene. <laughs> and the fact I that I can only Netflix and chill for so long, you guys. You can only do so much. <laughs> and right, I need a change of scene. It could be upstairs, downstairs, wherever. I'm and bad fact- at sitting still. I really am. I, right. I, this is I'm awesome. similar. Yeah. And you know, even in like a modern, you know, la- on land-based prison, you have a yard, you have recreation time, you have a job, you have some kind yeah. of thing. Because they know, you know, even though we, you know, have this relationship with, you know, the accused and prisoners in our society, we know there's a basic sort of human need that people have to not go insane. Yeah. And um, this listen, denies all of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, we can always do better for our prisoners without question. Yes. There's still a lot of corruption in the prison system. The for-profit prison system is a nightmare. But... Right. We have come quite a long way from this kind of shit where you can really do whatever you want. And it's yes. it's truly just the de- the depravity of of all of this. The unnecessary, the unnecessary cruelty of it is mm-hmm. just bone chilling. Really, really bone chilling. So how does this all come to an end? The Jersey, like many other prison ships, eventually were evacuated because it was becoming very clear the war is ending. There's no reason to, you know, keep these soldiers here. Like, fuck the prisoners. Who cares about them? But why are we, why are we keeping these soldiers on board? Also, we're probably going to get fucked over pretty soon. And if we keep keeping these prisoners here, so they are released. And that I think is in April of 1783. And the British Mm -hmm. occupation officially ends in November of 1783. So yeah, it's for the British to leave (laughs) New York. And Once you're here, man, <laughs> hard to get out. And that an evacuation day is a big deal in New York. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, people who people who like you know care. <laughs> people who were upright and who, right. I mean, today it's nothing, and that's another sad, sad tragic, sad fact to the lack of historical acknowledgement and our weird relationship with history in this city. Yes. It, evacuation day was the biggest friggin' thing. You know, the sh- the the British Armada is leaving New York City, going through the harbor like this in reverse from 1776. People are weeping, people mm-hmm. are shooting muskets. There are also people who are like, "Oh shit, I was a loyalist and now what do I do?" <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of those people got on those boats and fucked off. Yeah. Right. Cuz right. nothing it's, good was waiting for them at the end of the no, war. No. It's a very interesting moment and it was commemorated for a long time yeah. you know with these parades and it was around th- you know around what we would now celebrate thanksgiving around that time and it's largely forgotten now and to me that's just the saddest thing i know and th- and so that's going to get us to the next part of the story i mean this whole story is largely forgotten unless you yes, really know about the American we're talking about it now <laughs> precisely yes. my friend so let's talk about what happens after the war so all of these ships, again, they're not seaworthy anymore. So the British are like, we're going to leave our fucking boat garbage here. <laughs> and they just kind You're... of rot away. And so the Jersey, there, there's nothing left of it. No one Thank has God. ever discovered pieces of it or anything like that. It's just washed away. Yes. Wood. Yeah. And I was kind of Googling around like a, if there are any prison ships that are parts of prison ships that exist from that time. And I didn't come across anything. To be honest, it didn't look that hard. So there could be <laughs> things. How <somewhere>. dare you? 
How dare you not bring receipts? I need to see a creosote charred piece of burnt ship that's in the New York State Museum that you've got the label text ready to go. They did this light is... a lot of them on fire, so that really I bet. aided yeah, in their as they demise. should have. Yeah, I don't some mean... things are better left to the imagination. If yeah, bye bye. So. <laughs> The ramifications of all of this, and really it's one of the most unbelievable parts of this story, is that Mm -hmm. more Americans died on these British prison ships in the New York Harbor than in all of the battles of the American Revolutionary War. That is a staggering fact. Which, if you didn't know, now you know. That's how how terrible this is. (laughs) This part of this story is so important because it killed so many Americans Mm -hmm. upwards of there's people have arguments about the numbers. I think generally it's agreed upon between 10 and 11,000. Some historians will be like, no, it was like 15 to 18,000, but sure. I think minimum we're talking 10,000, which is a lot of um, people. It's usually more than we think, but yes, yes. But that's a lot of people. That's That's a a lot. lot of fucking people. It's a lot. And even worse, all of these individuals would be found in pieces. Their bones found washed up on the shores of Wallabout Bay. Um, as you heard from some of the accounts, they were barely buried, like a mm-hmm. foot or two foot. So eventually, you know, the tide's just going to pull them in and out and they're, the bodies will be uncovered. Or if they did dump them at sea, they're going to get washed ashore. But they're they're just a leg, an arm, a head. like Yeah. Can you imagine what it looked like on that shore? I it's a horror movie. I guess some pretty nasty images come to mind. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of torn clothing, you know, like the same thing we're talking about the Titanic, like, you know, pieces of leather, but also, like what's in the leather, like bones and rotten yeah, flesh. And, pe- mm. and people were dying on the ship up until the, the very end. So it's not like, well, most of these bodies would have been very old no. at that point if it's 1783 and it started in 1776. No, there were probably some fresh, fresh bodies there by the time right. this all ended. So, I mean, it's it's horrifying, really horrifying. What's really crazy is bones keep popping up for years, even after they initially remove a lot of these remains. Mm. A, a lot of stuff is found during the construction of the Navy Yard much later on. So, you know, this has a big impact on New York City for many years to come. And it's very obvious there's no ability to identify these people. Right. So uh, many of them, we have no idea. They're just nameless. Yeah. yeah. Which is terrible. So very early on, it's clear there has to be some kind of memorial commemoration for, I mean, these people are martyrs. Mm-hmm. They're heroes for this cause. They sacrificed their lives when they didn't fucking have to. <laughs> they didn't yeah. have to go through this. They actually sort of chose to by not, turning so it took a lot of time and a lot of political maneuvering yes um is this in and of itself is like a this could be an hour-long episode how it's an amazing story i'm sure you know it very well luke probably far better than i even do but essentially what it comes down to is the remains that are found are removed they're placed in a vault and a memorial and monument are built commemorating the patriotic sacrifice of these brave individuals by 1808 it has many facelifts over the years (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh it's it falls victim to neglect 
many times. But today it's pretty good. It's looking pretty good. The Doing great. Yeah, the big renovation to make it look the way it does now, that happened in 2004 is when it started. And it was budgeted at like a $3.5 million project. Mm -hmm. And by the time it was completed in 2008, I think it was actually closer to five, which is so much money. But these are human remains we're talking about. We're not just talking about like some, you know, silly statue. This is important. You know, it this is, is a tomb. Is. So you are able to access this monument if you ever find yourself in brooklyn new york you absolutely should visit luke i'm sure you've been at least once in fort green oh yeah 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 yeah. it's very accessible it is a national park now again took mm -hmm. a long time but it is <laughs> and uh so it is it is protected federally and you can go into the crypt where how would you describe it it's it's a pretty small room right it's like I've never actually been able to go into the crypt. You haven't. So whenever I've been there, the thing is always closed. Mm. So I've never actually been inside the crypt building. Um, okay. But there's a lot of plaques around and oh, I've yeah. read, you know, all the plaques and they do a really good job of describing the scale. They do. Um, yeah. Of what you're dealing with. And I think, yeah, I think even when I was there the last time, this is maybe a couple years ago, it was still under renovation or still going under I another think it will always be ground. Because it's like subterranean. I So I have no idea what it's the inside hard, looks like, but I'm very interested to see. Yeah. So it's, it's small. It's like maybe 15 by 20 feet mm -hmm. from the descriptions that I've seen. I've also never gone into the crypt, so I don't know either. But the description yeah. that I found, there's a series of coffins that are made of slate. Right. And they're kind of on these shelves, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's not like, you know, a coffin represents one individual. The bones are sort of sorted into different coffins. So, because you know, again, like we don't know, we don't know who they belong to. So right. it's, it's just a way of housing these remains in as respectable a way as possible. Um, because I don't, I don't think there's a single whole skeleton in the place. I don't think so. I didn't find anything that said that. No, so we're talking this, about lots of. This bones. reminds me a lot of. This reminds me a lot of the way the remains were interred at September 11th. That's exactly um, what I think of too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This Those I images mean, of like these vessels. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there it's even, um, you know, I mean, it's even more fragmented than what they have in this yeah. uh, vault. So um, I do want to read to you what is written on the memorial. In the name of the spirits of the departed free, sacred to the memory of that portion of American seamen, soldiers, and citizens who perished in the cause of liberty and their country on board the prison ships of the British during the Revolutionary War at the Wallabout. This is the cornerstone of the vault which contains their relics erected by the Tammany Society or Columbian Order of the City of New York, the ground for which was bestowed by John Jackson, Nassau Island, Season of Blossoms, Year of Discovery, the 316th of the Institution, the 19th and of American Independence, the 32nd, April the 6th, 1808. So. The Tammany Hall. I know. That's why I said mm -hmm. a lot of politics involved in this yeah. whole thing. And, and honestly, Tammany if it wasn't for politics, this might have gotten either not happened at all or continued Absolutely. to get delayed for a long time. Lots of drama. You know, and we talk about 
what gangs of New York got wrong, you know, but Tammany Hall did things like the fire service and like there were go good things that came out of Tammany. They kind of filled in the, in the, in the blanks there. And this is and one. I think, yeah. And I think Olmsted and Vox are a part of the facelift that gets I believe later. you're I'm correct. Getting of, yes. I'm getting ahead of ourselves. I think you're um, correct. No, no, no. I I'm not, go I'm not going in any deeper on totally, the history. To totally fine. Because it's huge. I think it's, I think it's amazing I think, to think. I think let's address that like here and there, maybe on socials for everybody so they can see kind sure, of more sure, info sure. on that. But it's just Rhetorically, calling them martyrs is such an interesting choice. Isn't right? it? You know, because we're not, we're not even saying they're prisoners, which mm -hmm. you could read that prison ship martyrs, they're prisoners, but mm -hmm. we're not saying it's the prisoner's monument. We're saying they're martyrs, which connotes a holy cause exactly. for which their lives have been laid, which is such an interesting, I think, kind of early American, how people are dealing with their history. The religious fervor civic of religion yeah it's this yeah godlike figures mm -hmm. um saintly figures saint washington you know the pantheon of the presidents um we, i don't and i don't know if we see that word martyr appear in other parts of the landscape i don't mm. think we do very often no, you know not really no so it's a really interesting um what am I work, what am I searching for? Like a label, identity that is attached to these That's victims. That's attributed to them, yeah. And mm -hmm. I it is not it is sort of the uh the misuse of the term, if you will. But um oh, it's a it's an overextension. It's of an term, overextension for sure. for sure. But without question, I mean, if you were to use it in terms of like a martyr to the cause, they certainly fit that description. It's incredible. That level of love of country is a beautiful thing and like to we we can't fathom it to, yeah. to know what it is to not live freely the way that we do that i would rather mm -hmm. die this agonizing slow death surrounded by horror on this yes. boat than just go even just fake it as a british soldier sure which is how we might describe our christian martyrs facing incredible yeah. pain and just saying to hell with you i'm yeah. not going to convert i'm not going to renounce my god i'm not going to renounce my country you know so it's just a it's a fascinating story and i think um, it's a level of um integrity that mm -hmm. is of the time that mm -hmm. we don't really roll quite like that <laughs> most of us these days there's not a lot of things I would die for. You know what I mean? There's a lot of no, people. you're right. There's a lot of people I would die for. There's there's to protect people. But yeah, yeah, it's an amazing thing. It's um, a unique moniker. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just want to finish up by quoting one of the survivors that I mentioned before, Alexander Coffin Jr. Uh, in an 1807 letter that he wrote. So just prior to the memorial being officially erected. The patriotism in preferring such treatment and even death in its most frightful shapes to the serving of the British and fighting against their own country has seldom been equaled, certainly never excelled. So there you go. I mean, yeah. that says it perfectly. And this is this is an incredible story of just the the honor and valor of these individuals and it speaks to the the absolute cruelties of war and what human beings are capable of. 
I, it's hard for me to, again, to understand like the British soldier motivation to be so horrible. I don't mm -hmm. understand it at all. You gain nothing by being a fucking monster here. I understand yeah. if you don't have the ability to provide them with things, but to elect to not do it. Yeah. And I think this was the, you know, one of the only successful revolutions in all of history. So, you know, their prevailing thought is we do whatever it takes to compel compliance. Oh, I mean, we're the first, right? Breaking we're the a few eggs. One. Yeah, exactly. We're the only really example. Yeah. And, you know, we use words like sacrifice, yeah. you know, in, in these situations. And no matter what word is used to connote the exchange of life for whatever, you know, right. someone else's point or evil or in resistance to an agenda, those words always obscure what actually happened. And I think it's really important to shed light on that. And, yeah. you know, the words, the words get diluted over time when yeah. we fight in endless wars and, you know, people say things like we're fighting for freedom and this kind of thing. And I think there's a purity to this fight and there's a real there's a real, there's real stakes and you can see the results and the gratitude in the monument that yeah. was neglected and has been rededicated. Um, and I think all of this is just making my mind kind of, you know, queuing up what we're thinking for like the 250th celebration mm -hmm. in 2026. I know. Through it's exciting. It is exciting. And, but for someone in the history field, like, you know, I think when we 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 live through several commemorations, you know, a September 11th thing and things like that, there's always this thought of, well, what did the last commemoration get right or get wrong? And yeah, you know, and I think we're in a weird we're in a weird oh, yes, we era of kind of oh, yes. the bastardization of the American Revolution and the founding laws and everything else where, you know, we're so far away from that now. And there have been so many interpretations and misinterpretations that mm -hmm. people really, I think they really don't understand what was being fought for <laughs> at the time. <laughs> These guys didn't die so I could have an 8K47. <laughs> That's not Oof, what they were giving yeah. their lives for. That's yeah. not what this yeah. was. No. I think you're right. And I think the bicentennial is by historians largely panned as oversimplified. Yeah. Nostalgic, rah yeah. rah America. Very, you know, not not very critical of you know the uh, inequities that were born into our society. Mm -hmm. Things like you know the fact that slavery was completely preserved, yeah. and women you know no gained nothing from this at right. all. Right, <laughs> exactly. And are those questions going? And I think the thing historians commonly say, or whenever, is that are these questions going to be answered, or are they going to be explored? Not even are they answered. Are they going to be brought up? Yeah. And in what way? And you know, I was working for the National Park Service during the American during the Civil War sesquicentennial, so the one fiftieth. Yeah. And we were so committed. The people I was working with and the Rangers and everybody was so incredible. And w I felt that the commemoration was kind of a dud because mm. there was not a national groundswell or interest in the 150th. It was like all for history nerds, which is a failure. It's a, it should, we should be inspiring the public and everyone to be part of it. And then what happened? A few years later, something went down in Charlottesville mm -hmm. and that kicked off a whole new examination of this legacy. Then- yep. 
statues started getting targeted. Then the tough conversation started happening. Then, you know, the sort of ideas of ideologies, whether they be woke or backward thinking or whatever, come to the surface and a new culture war was ignited. Yeah. So the commemoration is just us looking at the passage of time and saying, well, now it's been 250 years. So now we can say this or that. But that often doesn't line up with what the public when the public is ready to deal with those questions. It's not 300 years later, it's 307 years later or 425 years later. Yeah. Like it's not a neat, you can't wrap it up in a bow. You can make an ornament, yeah. I'll buy it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's about it. It's great for nostalgia, it's great for swag and shit sure, and yeah. gift, gift, gift stores. But I think, you know, I wonder if we're sort of moving towards like a post anniversary culture or something. I don't know I don't what know. I'm trying I to mean, say. I mean, like we, we talked about it a lot during our, our president's month celebration. That's not mm -hmm. a real thing that you and I celebrate. Um, Correct. How, We're shipping it. Right. That, I don't know, this, this obsession with the founding fathers, I think has become more unpopular because of the other side of who they were. The cracks because, in the marble. Correct. They're no so, longer deities, which we like. Which I love that. Yeah. I, I love learning and talking about and reading about and studying Thomas Jefferson more than ever because and I don't understand that fucking guy. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> like, and, I don't you know, him. <laughs> and that I think is the best thing you could bring up is that yeah. museums and our, you know, places where we do history or experience it are not meant to be temples, mm -mm. which is how they were first built. They're mm -mm. meant to be a forum where we engage with the complexity and i think we're so we're so stuck in that we, we we get we get stuck in that tension of the temple versus the forum yeah. and something like the prison ship martyr you know monument or grant's tomb is a temple oh yeah you know straight up and it doesn't provide a lot of space arguably programming and other things are ways for us to have that discussion um you know in this case is you know who's who's discussing the role of the british in this story you brought it up that's often neglected in this story um yeah so this is a really you know i think it's an interesting portent for where we're going for the 250th yeah and you know i mean we committed our own atrocities in that war as we have oh, in yeah. every war mm -hmm. you know i mean if you were a loyalist in the colonies you were fucked Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, you could have been tarred. You could have been tarred and feathered. Yes. We've all seen John Adams. We know. Oh my God, that scene, man. <laughs> That's the worst scene. That is so scary. The tiniest penis, and it's so upsetting. <laughs> <Stop it now. laughs> Damn you! Scarred. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That poor um, actor. God bless. Uh, he got uh, his yeah, that, The mob mentality. Yeah. Very scary. Very. Yeah. So, and that um, I think also is part of likely this treatment of these prisoners on these ships is part of that. Yeah. You know, one guy so, starts and the rest follow through. So, yeah. Is it fair to say, I don't know for certain, I'm asking the question, mm. the Brooklyn Historical Society would seem to be the nearest museum to the prison ship martyr monument i'm wondering if there's a, In a institution that comes to mind that might be the arbiter or if it's something that you know of course like the american revolution museum covers in philly i'm sure yes and um, the, i don't wonder if anything popped up and the brooklyn historical society has merged have they not aren't they the brooklyn like history something or didn't they merge with like the brooklyn public library or something they're like brooklyn. much bigger than they've ever been because because <laughs> frankly brooklyn's much bigger than it's ever been 
Like yes, not in actual um, size, but in population and popularity. Yeah, they now have property in Dumbo. Yeah. So, so they, they have probably, a nice. They should they if they not if they aren't already, they should be the yeah the arbiters of this without question. That I'm makes sure they sense. teach it in their classes. Certainly yeah, with the older sort of. Because they're right in downtown, so yeah. So yeah, guys. Aside from the memorial itself, Brooklyn is littered with American Revolution history. If I could ask for one thing to happen in this next anniversary, it's that New York does a better job of promoting and embracing its American Revolutionary War history and make it accessible. Create, mm. you know, these. Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce, come the fuck on. Just create like a little trail or a map or something. Promote it. For fuck's sake. You got all those, you got all those bids, all those business improvement districts. Put oh. that money to good use, you know? <laughs> Instead of putting up Christmas lights. <laughs> I mean, that's cute. I, mean, I really like them. <laughs> I do really like Just all of them. them. Yeah. So yeah. Um, we, I hope that you all continue to dive into this story. If any of you know more about this story, if any of our British listeners know more about this story on the British side, let me know, you dirty motherfucker. <laughs> Your sins are forgiven. Um, yes, Katie, thank you for bringing this story to light and for um, uh, sharing this important story. And it's just, um, it's a, uh, it's a powerful, it's sad, it's tragic, yeah. but it's something that's something that should be told. So yeah. thanks. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to this podcast. Please contact us at themorbidmuseum at gmail.com. Please follow us on Instagram and TikTok at The Morbid Museum. And please consider supporting us on Patreon. Become an official Morbuddy today. Until next time, we'll see you for another gallery talk inside the Morbid Museum Podcast. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.